now arriving downtown Santa Monica Station. I'm Adam Lesser. And I'm Joshua Townsend Zellner. Welcome to Notes on Your Notes, a podcast about the creative process and storytelling. And today, extremely special episode. Very special day. Very special day. And I feel honored, actually. I feel honored. Also, we're staring at um, a laptop, which we don't normally do on the show. Well, well, because of of who's on the other side of that laptop. Yeah. If I had known we got to go to (laughs) northern Nevada and hang out in Tahoe (laughs) with the snow, we would have actually flown to do this interview. Absolutely. I I would have dressed a little warmer, you know. Yeah. 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 Well. The amazing Stephen Kotler. Yeah. With us today. Yeah, he's the author of The Future is Faster Than You Think. It's a book that just came out, and it's number one best-selling on Amazon and a bunch of other places. And uh, the subtitle is How Converging Technologies Are Transforming Business Industry and Our Lives. And, I mean, Joshua, to be honest, um, so welcome, Stephen. You're allowed to talk. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, guys. Actually, we just want a photo of you. We're going to talk about your work. Yeah, there's so much. 45 minutes. Yeah. no, and Joshua, I mean, it, there's a, yeah. a connection for you in that yes. you've worked with Stephen on, on writing. And I, I, I had the, yes, I, I, I was blessed to spend some time with Stephen and just had a great time and an amazing teacher, inspirational person. And just sort of like just being in the room with you, Stephen, helps, helps me as a, as a creative, as an artist, as a writer, and someone who shows up more fully in my life. So thank you. It's really sweet of you to say thank you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I have like so many places. Yeah, yeah there's so many places to start. Like, you want to jump in? Yeah, it's... Um, where what's so I, I want to start off with the book since since that's a, a good place to start and one of the um things that you wrote and i and i, I have a quote here and we can then talk about it because this is where i wanted to um talk about in terms for our listeners and where they can go as a creative and use technology to help them get to the next phase and to some and in some ways be ahead of the curve and that was in your book um the future is faster than you think which is also almost the subtitle of the first book, right? Because it's a trilogy. Pun on this. The, the, not the first book. The first book that I wrote, Peter Diamandis. So The Future is Faster Than You Think is the third book in what we're calling the Exponential Mindset Trilogy. Uh-huh. Abundance, bold, future is faster than you think. Um, and uh, the subtitle for Abundance is The Future is Better Than You Think. Better Than You Think, yeah, yeah. We were going to, it was, okay, so it was going to be Abundance, Bold, and Convergence because the book is about converging technologies. But and the subtitle was the future is better than you think, but the publisher nixed that and we lost that war. And it's the future is better faster than you think is a better title, anyways, than convergence. Yeah. Their argument was nobody knows what the hell convergence is. Yes, um, it also sounds like a Christopher Nolan movie. But <laughs> <laughs> you're right about that. You're right about that. Uh, third in the Inception trilogy. Yeah. <laughs> yes, uh, so, I like your editor. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, no, they weren't wrong. They, it was a, it was a good choice, but we liked the ABC um, of abundance, bold, and convergence. We thought that was you know in your Uber super. I, I like I do right? too. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's fun. It's fun. Yeah, and I I appreciate the double on you know the double entendre of faster than you think and faster than you think, and it's all about how you say the line. It's uh, yeah. So. Um, yeah, so anything anything that, that's, that's burning inside of you about your book and that you wanted to share with us right away before we jump into this other section? Um, 
will tell you two things just from a creative standpoint mm-hmm. that, are, that are interesting about this book. So, um, Ed and I were talking right before we started taping about how when you work as a tech journalist at all and you step away for any bit of time, things are moving so quickly. Um, when you come back, you're sort of jaw, jaw dropped. And I had, uh, I wrote uh, Bold and then I, there were like three other books, two books on high performance, I think, and a, and a collection of, of uh, articles that came out. And uh, then uh, Peter and I started talking about doing Futures Fest and you think, and I sort of jumped back in the tech and just, you know, picked up the threads of what we had been writing about and studying before, but so much had happened and so much was coming that to literally hold my head it in my head and be able to write the Futures Fest and you think, I wrote a novel called Last Hang on Cyberspace, which is a cyberpunk near-term future thriller where I basically took all the innovations that we're writing about it in Faster, put them into a world, put the character into the world and let them run around so I could get a sense of what this, because Peter, what we, if you read faster, we did something I've never done before and really makes me nervous, predictive chapters. Hey, this is what the world's going to look like yeah. in 2020, right? that sort of thing. And I was really, I'm a reporter. I'm not like, I'm not in the habit of making predictions. You know what I mean? I'm a scientist. I'm a reporter. I don't do that. And so be, for me to get comfortable doing it, I had to literally create a world and let a character run around in it for a while so I could feel comfortable doing that. Wow. That's so cool. Yeah. 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 That's really that's really a good insight into your process, you know. So so how you have to live into one area yeah. in order to go into another. Hmm. Yeah, no, it's just a super interesting approach to writing what is ostensibly begins as a research and journalistic work about what different how technologies are changing the world and innovation and convergence. But in order for you as a journalist to actually get to that place psychologically and start to oh, think yeah. about like how to predict the future, it's almost like you created a fiction first. Yeah, well, so so convergence, the idea here is um, in abundance and bold, we were talking about individual lines of accelerating technology. So robo- how, what's happening in robotics, what's happening in AI, what's happening in blockchain. This book is about what happens when they converge. And really radical things happen when accelerating technologies converge. First of all, you get a whole is much greater than some of its parts effect. But you get um, converging technologies often lead to converging markets, right? Which is another thing that we talk about in the book entertainment and healthcare are coming together and um i can explain what that means but the point i'm making is uh because we're talking about everything that's happening now but saying hey we're going to look look is about this 10-year time horizon what's going to change over it and because we were trying to look into the future and converging decks it's really hard to sort of a map kind of wrap your head around that that's what i that's why i sort of needed fiction for that um i always say you know in, in today's world so many people have stopped reading fiction and I always say, you know, nonfiction is phenomenal for facts, but if you want new perspective, you have to read fiction. That's where it comes from. So, or at least for me, it does. Yeah, absolutely. I always think like there's that, a vein of that in a lot of the people I've met in Silicon Valley. Like I think about the Jetsons and like this is this created world. And then like now some of the technologies in the Jetsons, we just don't even think about them, like what we're doing right now. Like I can look I, at it. You know, Peter Diamandis, who's the founder of the X Prize and you know, kind of the entrepreneurial force behind twenty different companies, and my co-writer, uh, likes to say that you know his whole life was shaped by this documentary about the future known as Star Trek. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 it's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so here we go. So we're going to get into the the actual thing that you bring up in your book, which is I'm about to. Uh, it's about to get personal. Before the, uh, you, this is what you write. Uh, it's about to get personal. Before the end of the next decade, this transportation revolution will impact some of the most intimate aspects of our lives. Where we choose to live and work, how much free time we have, how we spend that time. 
It will change how cities look and feel, the size of the local dating pool, the demographics of local school districts, the list goes on and on. Yet try to visualize that on and on. Seriously, put down this book, close your eyes and ask yourself a question. How will this transportation transformation change your life? Start small, consider your day, what errands you would run, what stores you visit. Are you sure about that? So that got me into this whole other world of, of when, when this world exists in five, 10 years from now, how much that will change what we as creatives do and who we collaborate with. I, like, I can imagine actually like working with someone in Paris I think you guys give that analogy of, you know, like having lunch in Paris in an hour and a half or something like that. But if the transportation shifts to that degree, the people that I could collaborate, live, collaborate with at, in, in a very real way is literally worldwide. Yeah. I, I don't know if it's, I mean, in the next 10 years, so just so your readers aren't totally lost, we're talking about things like the emergence of flying cars, of which there are a hundred different flying car companies and Uber wants to have flying cars in Dallas and Dubai and LA by 2023, um, autonomous cars, hyperloops, trains that go 750 miles an hour. Um, the stuff you're talking about, so this was Elon Musk's promise. He's building his new rockets. He wants to a Mars colony. He literally um, wants uh, to start that process by 2030. And he pointed out at, in a recent conference that like, you know, the same reusable rocket that gets people to space goes 17,500 miles an hour and it can do Shanghai to New York in 39 minutes. So that's probably a 2030s thing, I would guess, perhaps. But the fact that like, you know, there's a bunch of different hyperloops going on. I was just reading about one, uh, a new one between Cleveland and Pittsburgh, for example. Um, that will link, you know, those cities. It'll be a 15-minute train ride or something like that. So suddenly somebody living in, or, you know, L.A. to San Francisco, L.A. to Vegas, those are other hyperloops that have been proposed. And suddenly it's a 20-minute train ride. That's basically the subway from New York to Brooklyn, right? I mean, it's this, it's like that's – so, yes, you're, who you collaborate with, mm -hmm. totally different. Also, who's competing against you? Totally different. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. If you're a reporter going after stories or things like that, like what, you know, what's your local district? Like, can you cover if you're an on the ground reporter that starts to change a little bit? It's interesting. It shifts a lot of it shifts a lot of stuff. Um, and it enables, you know, it enables people to live kind of farther away, you know, mm -hmm. more real estate, less money. I don't know if it um, I think it's going to empower creatives in, in, in kind of in, in interesting ways. Uh, I, I see much more upside than downside. Um, I, there are issues with that stuff um, as far as there are environmental concerns that I, that I worry about um, with that kind of transportation sprawl um, impinging on wildlife and, and, and stuff like that. But uh, um, I do think it's, for creatives, it, it could generally help. Um, it also, I mean, Think about tax laws in Los Angeles. Think about tax laws in Nevada. Think about what happens when you can live in Nevada and work in Los Angeles. You know what I mean? Like things like that are interesting. Yeah. I, I know this one guy who actually moved to uh, Las Vegas just so he wouldn't have to pay a certain tax because he was a, he was a broker, stockbroker. And so it's like, oh, well, I'll just live here three months a year. Yeah. And, yeah. So, yeah. See, as you're talking, one of the things I've been thinking about is how actually some of these technologies might change the type of content we want in our relationship to them. Like, for example, let's say like VR. For 
you know, where you feel no longer that you want to passively consume a story, but you want to be part of the actual story. Um, and now we have technology that's making that more and more possible, right? So, like, I can be part of the book, right? And we've had this for 40 years, like, choose your adventure. But do you think there's a way in which um, some of these conversions of technologies might actually change the ex both the form, the content, and actually the experience we want as consumers from entertainment? So it's interesting. Uh, so years ago, 1991, I worked uh, for a startup called Tramscape. I was a writer. And we were literally like, they were the very first company that was trying to put sort of like, it was basically like sort of what you're seeing now with home uh, exercise, like Nordic track. And there's a screen, except yeah. they wanted you, they had biofeedback sensors and they were going to, as you exercise your body, you know, what your body was doing was going to steer the story. So I was, I'm probably the first guy in history to try to write like a multi-tiered choose your own adventure story where the, your body's biofeedback. And feedback choosing the story and I will tell you like first of all I was I, I hadn't even gone to grad school yet like in writing like I was fresh out of college as a writer right I had tried to do that kind of like it was a disaster like why they hired me I don't like I don't know if anybody could have done it at that point um it was we hadn't have video games didn't do that none of those things did that so trying to write that kind of multi-layered interactive story um was incredibly incredibly difficult really hard I don't necessarily um, I mean, we've got different mapping techniques now that are sort yeah. of useful for that. We've got different visualization techniques that are useful for that. But I still think it's a creative puzzle. Um, and yes, I think uh, my, my point here is um, we've been, you know, moving in this direction for a while. And I think, you know, with VR, with AR, AR turns the entire real world into a video yeah. game, as we saw with, yeah. you know, Pokemon Go. Um, it's going to change the nature of a lot of storytelling. Um, but it's also, you know how this goes. Radio was the only medium, and then it got, you know, shared the airways. It shrinks down, but, you know, what something something core remains. So I think, you know, movies will change. Magazines, right, they shrunk and they shrunk and shrunk, and now it's stabilized, yeah. right? Magazines seem to be making a little bit of money again. The storytelling quality is coming back. And um, so, yeah, I think new forms are going to emerge, um, and there will be a culling in the older forms, um, I think, as well. I, um, I think it's going to get really, you know, it gets really uh, interesting. It's also haptics, right, which allow yeah. sets of touch. That's a weird thing. You're a storyteller who can now telegraph touch senses, sensations and smells into your, like, that's really interesting. Um, so, yeah, I think it's going to, I think it's going to open up a whole bunch of new, new stuff. You know, we, one of the things, this is the point we make in the book, um, is every time a technology goes exponential, forget about converging technologies, but every time it goes exponential, we find an internet-sized opportunity inside. So there's a lot of new stuff coming, and I think there's a lot of new work, interesting work for creatives, um, and especially with the stuff that's coming in artificial intelligence, um, certainly uh, the jobs that are, are safest and strongest are creative jobs. Um, and certainly, you know, what we're seeing now is that the bet with AI also is the best kind of collaborations are AI human collaborations. And you can do that with storytelling. People are already starting to kind of do that with storytelling. We've seen examples in film. We've seen examples in writing a little bit. It's getting it's going to get interesting. And creativity yeah. seems to be job security in this coming that, century. That is such an interesting right. concept that creativity equals security. You're talking about a flip, right? But for <laughs> creativity may equal job security yeah well it's almost like the things that become the things that are non-linear that a computer can't do become of greater value over time um 
abstract thinking yeah. until AI figures out how to write a novel. Um, well, they're, they're close. They're they're, close. They, we talk about this in the book. There was an AI uh, novel. Not, there was a contest in Japan uh, that an AI came. It was the, their National Literary Awards. Um, and an AI made it to the second round of judging or the third round, like in the book was pretty good is my understanding. So it's getting, I mean, already, you know, if you read most any major paper business or some of the business reporting and a lot of the sports reporting, that's AI generated. Yeah. You see it's an article in like the wall street journal or Forbes written by narrative science, narrative science is an AI. Yeah, sports. Some sports reporting. Yeah, more good news for done. journalists. <laughs> I, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't like know baseball it. reporting. Yeah. Um, yeah. When it's when it's literally like a paint by numbers thing. It's and, like a, you know, a basic recounting of a game. Box. You know the rules are really split, right? Yeah, they the AIs can do that already. I didn't know that. That's amazing. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Um, Joshua, at the opening of the show, talked about collaboration and like in convergence. For example, if I want to do a theater rehearsal and I can get an actor here from Paris, either transportation-wise or holographically or some other way in the future that makes it possible that block collaboration. And I was curious for you on a personal level, because you've written books with Peter Diamandis, who you wrote this book with, but you've also written books solo. And for you as an experience, like, what do you notice about the difference between, you know, creativity and collaboration and then when it's, when it's you more in a solo sense? So I've written, I think I've written 13 books, 12 or 13 books. Four have been collaborations, right? Three with Peter, and then I wrote Stephen Pyre with somebody as well. And, uh, one, choose your collaborative partners carefully, right? If it goes wrong, it's it's such an unpleasant experience yeah. and um, really stressful. So Peter and I did it in an interesting way, which is we divided responsibility. We split writing responsibilities. I'll take final pass on everything, but Peter will. A lot of people think I'm ghosting him or something like that. Yeah. That's not happening at all. He's actually, he's writing, I'm writing. Um, and we, we share the responsibilities equally on that but i he took final say off say on content and i get final say on words so we have very clear fiefdoms um and that has worked i mean we we give each other a couple of vetoes per book and that has worked really really well and the other thing i will say um about our collaboration i've said this before when people ask about collaborations um and i've seen disability in collaborative in partnerships and i've had partnerships where you don't have this ability and you want it which is if you've ever collaborated, you're going to lose your mind. Like once or twice a book, you're going to freaking lose your mind. It's going to happen. You're going to start screaming at your partner. Like it just happens. And you're going to say awful things, right? Because it's writer's block. It's the creative process. It feels like your life is on the line. You got paid and you're on deadline and all that stuff. Um, and, you know, creativity gone wrong makes you a little crazy. And when there's another person involved, you can, right? It comes out. And, and what's great about Peter and I is we can literally lose our shit with each other. 30 seconds later, you know, we're laughing about it. We're oh, back to the work. Oh, that's right. And I mean, we've known each other a very, very long time, yeah. long before we were kind of writing books together. We were friends and, and we knew, you know, so um, really helped. And, you know, having mad respect for the other person also really helps. Yeah. And one of the uh, things you talk about, the, the hive mind collaboration, Oh, at the end of the book. Yeah. And one of the things that, again, going back to the artist, it's like, and then in another book, I remember reading you saying, talking about um, the Navy SEALs and how they, they trained. Yeah, so we're, one, the Navy SEALs was, was, I was writing about group flow, right? The shared yeah. collective version of, of, of flow state. Yeah. Right. So a team performing at their very best. Yeah. 
Yeah, like a team performance. And yeah, I, I, I kind of liken those two things in, in my in my mind. I kind of liken them that they're not dissimilar. I mean, so I for one, I think you're probably right. Yeah. Uh, two, um, I think you know, in a sense, group flow might be training training for what brain computer interfaces are going to bring along. So that worth putting this in context for folks listening yeah. at the very end of futures faster than you think we pull back and give people a hundred year view what right we did the book focuses on what's going to happen over the next 10 years we give people a hundred year view and we focus on five kind of world-changing migratory forces mm -hmm. um one is climate change migration and there's urbanization and one of the things we're talking about is a uh, kind of a, a journey into where a lot of people are working on brain computer interfaces and trying to put our brains on the cloud basically and uplink our brains to the cloud and the technology is moving a lot faster than anybody believes right brain computer interfaces back in 2015 we were paraplegics could move cursors with their brains just by thinking about it by like 2017 people were playing video games just by with brain computer interfaces um there's other stuff going on that's really interesting and again elon musk has said you know, he's got a company in Neuralize and he, he, he's got re, he's working with Charles Lieber's tech out of Harvard and doing incredible uplink things and it's getting really complicated and interesting and, and sometime in the next century we're going to be able to upload all of our consciousnesses into the cloud sort of or a part of it and what does that mean does that allow us kind of hive mind collaborative capabilities that we've never had before probably does it's definitely um you know, I, when I look for technological changes, any of this stuff, I always look for really simple human drivers. Like I don't, it's not fancy to me. It's really basic and biological and loneliness is a giant plague in the modern world. And the, so far our technology has not solved it, right? It's made it worse, we think. But here's a technology where you might be able to send emotions or experiences or share them in, a, in kind of a raw data sense with other people. That's the possibility. That's what we were poking at. That's what we were looking at. And Will it unlock new forms of collaboration that we've never before been able to imagine? Like, yeah, really interesting. Really, really interesting. Um, I, I I often wonder, you know, creativity. I've done a lot of collaborations, but they're still, my experience is they're still very solitary. You might work with somebody else, but, you know, I'm writing my sections. Peter's writing his sections. You come together and, you know, talk about the editing, and then but then you there's still... You know, it's better than writing books alone, right? I started collaborating, um, not on all my books, but on some of them, because I was just like, wow, if I just keep writing books, I'm going to, like, I spend 14 hours a day alone. Yeah. And, you know, my, my, my wife and I will go, I'll go months without talking to another human being besides my wife. Um, wow. Not unusual. Really not unusual. I'm introverted a little bit to begin with. I can play extrovert on TV, <laughs> but I'm pretty introverted. And, uh, um will really like if it's ski season kind of thing and i'm in the middle of a book project and i'm you know splitting my time between writing and like skiing every yeah. which is my thing yeah i can really go a long time without seeing another human being besides my wife and that's not particularly healthy um so i decided i had to start collaborating a little bit <laughs> because, it's uh, like no i mean it's why people in, in hollywood get writing partners it's a very different yeah. experience to wake up every day and write together with someone else yeah, you, know. you talk about that a lot, how sometimes it can be Yeah, I mean, I've done both, and it can be very nice to have someone else's ideas. I think you have to get along with them exceptionally well, and there are going to be times where you're going to go to war over what's supposed to happen in this chapter or scene. Um, I've also spent a lot of my life, like you, sitting in a room typing, 
and putting together words and sentences and paragraphs for different people and for myself. So I can relate to that. I think it sounds like you have a little bit of an edge because I think I am more extroverted than introverted. And I think about when I hear you describe the lifestyle, I get it. I was like, ooh, this is really good for an introvert, which is why at times I would say I have, I have, uh, it's been more of a challenge for me. Um, but, you know, Josh and I were talking earlier and because we were talking about, you know, collaboration and, and what can happen. And, and I was like, and I said, you know, it's one thing, like even in a, in a two-person writing partnership, but how do you enter a group sort of flow state on a large collaboration, like 150 people on a film set, right? We are trying to increase people working together. It's a very high stress situation. People are tired, uh, a lot of moving parts. You're trying to tell a story. <laughs> like, is it possible to scale those sorts of, you know, we talked about the Navy SEAL example, but one of the questions I think I have is, is this possible to scale up in, in sort of a large scale creative situation where you have a lot of different creative people involved? So it's a really interesting question. And so the, my, my answer, the answer is yes. So first of all, let's, let's just back off. Group flow uh, is the term we use usually to describe like a team, right? And when you talk about group flow, the most important, one of the most important things is you want to isolate that team from the rest of the world, right? You need them completely focused on what they're doing and the task at hand. Um, we certainly, uh, a guy named Keith Sawyer, he's not the University of North Carolina, uh, did all the kind of foundational research on group flow. And what he did is he uh, worked with Second City Television, the improv theater sure, troupe, yeah, and comedy yeah, troupe, yeah. and uh, he spent literally 15 years with them mm. videotaping improv. And what he would look for is the moments the show came together, like the laughter level went through the roof, right? That was his, that was, oh, okay, everybody's in group flow now. And then he worked backwards. What's triggering it? So he came up with 10 triggers, um, and uh, they haven't been validated again yet um completely other people have worked on it since then and found um and it's advancing a little bit now um we don't have great measurement technology for group flow yet um but we also know you can take it at scale so the answer to your question there's the experience of com communitas is uh group flow at scale it's a rock concert where everybody gets yeah. caught up in the music and right and you also can get i don't know if they call it communitas or group flow but you see it in like startups maybe not 150 people, but 30, 40, 50 people all working towards one goal to launch the company. Get a lot of group flow there. I, um, there are rules, there are ways to do it, and I'm sure you can do it. And certainly we see it in like massive multiplayer role-player games sure. where like there's a lot of group flow there. The problem, the difficulty, let's not even say problem, let's just say the challenge is um, with something like a film yeah. is I, you there's a weird power hierarchy on, on film sets. Like there's, there's a bunch of stuff that stand in the way of all the group flows. I'll give you an example. Um, one of the things that's really important for group flow is sort of a sense of equality, right? Where everybody's, everybody's adding value and, and sharing communication and things like that. And they tend to be flatter structures where they remove hierarchy. So the Navy SEALs, for example, um, Famously, they don't salute each other. They don't salute officers. They don't. They wear civilian clothes. And the reason is they don't want, because with the SEALs have a rule, which is when they get into a situation, whoever knows what, what to do next, that's the leader. So it allows a really fluid kind of right yeah. flat hierarchy that, that allows them to do their jobs very well. Um, I don't know many Hollywood directors or any Hollywood directors, right? Is, you ever, you ever met a Hollywood director who's like, okay, we're going to make this movie. It's going to be a democracy. Everybody gets to vote on this seat, right? Like you can't do it that way. So it would really depend 
on the director. Mm-hmm. I would go my I, so Ron Howard, who has a fairly benign reputation as a director in terms of working with him. Go ask folks who have worked on his films. A couple other people like that who have a kindly, gentler vibe, maybe. I don't know. Maybe not Werner Herzog? Pardon me? Maybe not not Herzog. I don't think it's not a very flowy experience. Well, because there's a deeper question underneath this, which I have, which is, in this example and in the creative world, there is sort of a perception, particularly in film, but in other, even in TV with showrunners, that there's a singular, if you give someone a singular vision for what a creative project can be, it can be really great if you really, if that person really has that power and that creativity, and that when it becomes a, too many, you know, fingers get in the pot, and what they say in Hollywood is like, you know, a script is bad when there's, you know, eight writers on it because it means at that point it's been just completely, and that's the kind of thing that I always wonder about in the creative world with group flow. Like, is it possible, or is it more the fact that like sometimes there is this uh, world of uh, deep focus of individual perspective. So one of the other triggers for group flow, really important, is a shared clear goal, right? And you have it has to be a real it has to be a shared clear goal. So everybody has to have a really close, same, tight vision. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. That's so. I mean, clearly in Hollywood, if you've got eight writers on a script, it's because they didn't because they didn't start out that way, right? right? It's right. with one or two. <laughs> that was the clear vision. Right. And these other guys get brought in because something was broken with the vision. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, or, you know, actors got involved or that sort of thing. So um, actors got involved. you could do it. You would just, you know, it, I, with, it was like any other, you know, at the, at the Flow Research Collective, we train everybody and we train a large companies in, in, in flow and group flow. And, um, you know, you emphasize the shared, clear vision. Um, it gets a little so you'd have to like everybody would have to be in on the vision you know what i mean and agree from the start kind of thing on what it is and where it's going so you would when we work with companies we say that this stuff is often better sort of baked in at the start than bolted on afterwards it's a little harder you can do it but it's a little more difficult but with the front end of a longer creative project i you could you could really sort of take the 10 group flow triggers which are listed in my book rise of superman there i mean they're in there i think they're in stealing fire too but definitely rise of superman um and you can sort of build your, you know, your project around them. Um, it still doesn't mean that, you know, people have, you, you, you're going to need, I think you're always going to need dictators. You know what I mean? Yeah. Somebody's got to be able to say, okay, this is the right idea kind of thing. Yeah. 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 A little bit. Yeah. A bit of a gatekeeper in terms of the quality or the vision or whatever it is to keep checking it in to keep it online. But at the same time, be collaborative and like you were saying, flat in terms of, because I, I see that in improv, I see that in, sometimes in theater productions, but rarely have I ever seen it on a set where you have that hum, that sort of like seamless integration of everyone working together. And I, I just find they're it... They're big projects. I mean, I've, you know, I haven't worked on a lot of movies, but I, but I have worked on some big, big films. And uh, by the way, not as a writer. This was like... <laughs> I, 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 wor- I was second wardrobe something on Beverly Hills Cop 3, like right out of grad school, because <laughs> I the money and a friend of mine was working on the film and uh-huh. I think the, the, his buddy was working with him and his mom got sick or something, so I subbed <laughs> in, right? Like stuff like that. Uh-huh. Not not as a writer. Don't, like, yeah, don't yeah, get me wrong. Yeah. Uh, there's a, they're big projects. They're, yeah. they're, you know what I mean? Like yeah. you, I guess you could run your department you could run the writer's room yeah, that yeah. way yeah. to yeah. mesh the whole thing together. That's a little trick. I think it's doable yeah. here. And I don't, um, I don't know what it really looks like. And, and when I say that, 
um, so with companies, we always say, especially with group flow, um, we don't, we can teach train. Hey, these are the flow triggers. This is how this, it works as a science. This is what we know. We train a lot of people that way. When we're working with actual organizations, we tend to conduct, we put them through that basic training. And then, you know, with, uh, with psychologists who work for me, you know, we will, an organizational psychologist will do sort of living experiments. Okay. Hey, t- let's take this one flow trigger uh-huh. autonomy, say, uh-huh. right. And let's introduce them to your company, say the same way 3M does by 15% time kind of, or something like that. Um, we go one trigger at a time. I don't know, like, and, but companies are together for a long time. You can't do these films come together for yeah. nine months and then they, yeah. right. So I don't quite know how you do that unless you're working with the same team over time. Um, which I think which to some extent happens a lot. I mean, there are reasons people like people, people like says use the same yeah. editors, yeah. the same DPs for years. Clint Eastwood. I mean, you know, yeah, there's, there's a lot of people that work together. Yeah. yeah, and they like. Yeah, that. They I would get. Them. I would get. So another thing that we know is familiarity is a group flow trigger, mm-hmm. and one of the reasons is shorthand, right? If you and I have worked together for ten years, we don't have to speak in complete sentences. We can speak in shorthand, right? Yeah. And everybody's always on the same page, and yeah. that's really important for group flow. Yeah. If you have, if there's a lag, right? If you know, you you always want to share information freely for group flow uh, among teams members but you also got to speak the exact same language because that's you know that's part of the point too yeah. so you that also means that you need a level of like usually where there's teams that are really good with group flow everybody's skills are sort of they may be varied but they're all at the same level you don't have you're not going to get group flow in a group of rock climbers if one guy sucks and the other partner is great mm-hmm. right it doesn't and it's the same way in any sort of collaborative project you know that you don't want to like as a writer the last thing you want is you know here have your just at a college intern yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Good. um so one of the things that was cool the book talks about is neurotech and um, you know, particularly like, you know, mention references efforts like at Facebook to have us, you know, type without typing just from our brain from from without doing that. Oh, yeah, more, more BCI stuff. Yeah. And I, I wonder about that from a creative sense, because like, you know, for example, David Foster Wallace could have written Infinite Jazz with a computer, but famously he wrote on yellow legal pads. I've noticed that myself, there is a creative difference between writing in a notebook versus typing versus writing on an iPad. This would be the next, you know, the next evolution of that where I don't have to do anything. I can just think the words. And I'm just wondering, do you do you feel like there's a, it will impact the actual creative end product from the shifts in how we actually put those sentences together? Of course. I mean, look, we know. Just let's take it back a step. Uh, you read differently on an electronic device than you do in a book, right? Mm-hmm. I still, I just, I just, I I run around the world with textbooks, right? And have you seen a neuroscience textbook? Like they're they're huge, yeah. but memory doesn't work as well on a kindle because it turns out our memory is spatial of course right we were trying to remember environments so how far we are through a book actually the brain uses that to try to remember to remember things and if you deprive it of that right, right everything's duty you can't hold the book in your head as much so there's also links between writing by hand and memory um as well so there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff going on here um the, the medium is the method on a certain on, on a certain level. I mean, the method is the medium, and they they're both going to impact each other. And uh, so, yeah, the way we tell stories is going to impact the stories we tell. It's so cool. inter- I can't believe you use that example because I have a Kindle. I've had one for twelve years, and the thing I hate about it is feeling not know not knowing where I am in a book. And it's like you know, I've read some anecdotal studies that the one 
the one area of the digital transition which has not been as fast and where there's still an analog interest is in books. People okay, still so I, like... I have a, I have a whole... Uh, I, I, I've written about this extensively. I have an article for Forbes uh, called The ROI on Reading. So let me, so let me just... This is worth talking about a little bit because there's a lot of people who do research for a living listening um, for their writing. Think about it this way. This, I'm not going to tell you anything you don't know, but if I read a blog, right, and I wrote a blog for Psychology Today for years, for Forbes for years, you're gonna, it takes about average reading speed, depending, 150 to 250 words a minute, right? So let's say um, I write a 800-word blog. It takes you three, four minutes let's say it takes you four minutes to read it right what do you get for your four minutes because there's a time exchange here right you give me your time i'm going to give you information sure. you're going to get about two days worth of my research and my writing right for a blog i'm probably writing about something i know but i'll probably do one or two more interviews and i'll spend a couple a little while reading and i'll spend four or five hours writing right that's what you're going to get if that was a say an article i would do for wired or for the new york times Sunday magazine is five thousand words and um, you got it. So now it's a twenty. You're going to give me twenty minutes of your time. What do you get for my, your? What do you get in return? Well, if it's a magazine article, you'll get three to six months of my life, right? Probably one month researching the story before I even start reporting it. Three months reporting it. Another month writing it. A month battling with my editor. You know, so their brain gets in it too. Mm-hmm. And right, and a book. You know, Rise of Superman. My book, Rise of Superman, seventy-five thousand words. Take up five, six hours for the average person to read. What do you get in return? 15 years of my life. Yeah. My point is that books are the most condensed form of knowledge we've ever invented. So you can't beat it. And until a tech comes along that will come close, you're never going to beat books. Um, and certainly, you know, listening to podcasts, you know, all that, it doesn't, it doesn't compare. And I, you know, I always, people are like, well, why can't I listen to a lecture? I'm like, look, I, I give speeches for a living. Um, and I will tell you that, you know, in an hour long speech, you're getting nowhere near, you know, the density you could from spending that reading a book. Sure. So I'm a big fan of books. I don't think they're going away. In fact, I, I'm, I'm surprised that so many people read on Kindles. I can see reading fiction on Kindles. I'm surprised. I'm shocked that people read nonfiction on Kindles. Yeah. I mean, just anecdotally and like from some of the, I just have friends who have tried Kindles and have gone back to reading paper books because of these issues around that you point out around memory as part of it. Um, I think part of it is also around focus and feeling like you can be dedicated and focused to this experience in front of me, where it's just harder on an electronic device. Yeah. Yeah. I, mean, well, I, I yeah. end this question. Yeah, you do. Well, I want to go back to that thing of, um, of uh, you know, a little earlier you talked about uh, writing that thing in the 90s where, you know, you have branching narratives uh, for that company. Yeah. I actually did the same thing when uh, a, a dating company uh, called me and asked me to, to work on, like, personality tests that you would actually do. And then based on the choice points they would do, you'd have, you know. They're forking. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the amount of the amount of writing that you would have to do to, to, to make it branch wherever you had a choice point was insane. It was, I would assume it's exponential. And so we could never get it off the ground. Do you see something in the future that's coming up that will help us? Yeah, I see that. That's where I see tremendous human AI collaborative storytelling potential on that exact, like on that, on this exact point, um, AI is really sort of built for it. um, And it's the only way 
you're really and we're already doing it right like video games are that they have they have they have multiple world right they're already doing it um it just the storytelling is still not super sophisticated yet um and uh that i think that'll change and i think this is a really good you know i think there's going to be somebody you think there's going to help group of creators who figure out how to how to collaborate with ai for storytelling purposes and and, and you know they'll have jobs that's all i can say for a long time because that's a, that's a huge project if if people could predict how someone's going to act on like a on a date or on a job and they could run through a gamut of of stories and based on what they choose in that story which way their character goes that's insane that's that's the project i was working on and so you could extrapolate different kinds of um, I'm just personality traits. You're talking about a personality. Yeah. Their personality test is which way they choose to go in the story. Yes. Right. It's, and we, I mean, we do that. Uh, in fact, we just did a uh, uh, big flow and creativity study where we use semantic analysis. So we used an AI to analyze what words people used in answering our questions to find patterns. So, um, you know, that's just as part of what we're doing. Anyways, you could absolutely do that with a personality test. That's interesting. I didn't think about it that way, but that's cool. Yeah, and then, and then taking that. But the, this is the roadblock we kept running into, which was like five minutes, a five-minute story would need like, you know, a thousand pages of, of, of story just for five yeah. minutes because of all the branches that you would then create in that branch. That's why you'd have to do it. You'd have to do it with an AI. Yeah, you'd have to, yeah. You couldn't do it. Yeah, that's interesting. It's like sliding doors on steroids, because it keeps. Anyway, yeah. So, so that is possible. You feel like for the in the if if someone could really collaborate well with. Yeah, I'm. Uh, yes, yeah, I do think that's possible. What I was thinking of is, uh, God, what is the name of that Daniel Lewinsky sort of horror techno thriller book with a house of leaves? That's not mm -hmm. house. Of, I can't remember what it's called. The house keeps adding on new rooms. Every time you go into a room, another room appears. Oh, um, wow. The really cool horror-ish book that from the '90s. I'm yeah. blanking the title. This is. You want to talk about things that are really going to impact creatives? Yes. Let's talk about this. So this is really interesting. So, um, and we know this. Uh, work done, Harvard Development Project, a bunch of other things. We get cre creativity increases with age. Right. It, it, it can decrease in a lot of people, but if, if you do it right and you train right, you get better as you get older. Um, and one of the one of the reasons is uh, there's a shift in a, around the time we hit 50. Um, you just you become your ego gets a lot quieter. And you, you actually begin to see things from multiple perspectives. Right. More empathy, more, which makes for better storytelling, especially creative storytelling. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so in the 20th century, we gained. 30 roughly 30 years of life extension and this was everything from the development of germ theory and better sanitation and water right and by the end of it we were mostly living into our 70s and then we got better at treating heart disease and cancer and now it's pushed up into our 80s technology healthcare is moving so quickly um we gain roughly five hours of life extension for every day we managed to stay alive so over the past 10 years everybody who stayed alive we gained three more years of life Due to the advancement of healthcare technologies and things like that, so life extension and longevity has gone from this crazy pie in the sky thing to hey, we now know there are nine major causes of aging. 
there are two or three really credible companies, a couple hundred researchers working on each of these problems. And it is moving forward and it is moving forward really, really, really quickly. And, you know, the argument we make in faster is that within the decade, we should gain another decade of life. So my point is we're, creators are going to be living longer and longer. That means um, a number of things. One, it means saving for retirement ain't what it used to be, right, which is our issue. Two, I think it's gonna. I think it's going to lead to better art. Um, hmm. I think um, I think there's a whole bunch of interesting things that happen cognitively to creatives in their 50s and 60s. Um, you know, traditionally, a lot of the creative fields, other than writing, right? But think about your creative industries, how youth-tilted they are. Um, even 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 as writers in Hollywood, I mean, if you're not 20 and you, you know you're working at Disney, it's like you get fired. There's a whole wave of that. So there's you, a wave of it, and I, you know, I think it, one, I think it's just stupid. I don't. I think it's ignorant of um, human psychology. I always said that you, if you really understand human psychology really well, and we're building the perfect company, you'd want a bunch of people under 30 and a bunch of people over 50, and a, and very select choices in between. Hmm. Um, and I think I think that would, especially for maximizing creativity, um, that would be worth a damn. And I, but we're going to be we're going to live longer. You're going to learn more. We're going to you know to me that's that's cool. I you know every every time I do a project, it's you know I, there's the content challenge. The I want to communicate these ideas to you, and then there's a writing challenge, right? Mm-hmm. Something you've never seen. So for example, faster. Um, I can say this now that it's on the bestseller list. I couldn't before. <laughs> Because if it didn't work, you would laugh at me. I wrote three books this year. Um, I, I, I wrote a novel, right, Last Tango, um, uh-huh. who I'm finishing up. Uh, I wrote uh, an audio book, a little different than writing a book, but it's a, it's a book called The Mapping Cloud Nine that came out in October, and then Faster just came out. Um, and I actually, uh, excuse me, I published Last Tango. I also wrote uh, a book that's coming out one year from now on peak performance. And I, one of the reasons I did it is I had done two books in a year before, Um working really, you know, 14 hour days, it's not easy, but, and I just, I like upping the challenge level a little bit. So I tried to write, you know, two actual books and an audio book, um, in a year and, um, thank God it worked, um, at this point, like maybe the book that comes out next year sucks and, and you guys can have me back on and be like, dude, it didn't work. <laughs> um, we'll play this tape then. Yeah. But, yeah. It'll be a <laughs> Um, I'm super curious how you divide your time then when you're working on multiple projects, because do you divide your day or do you do it in sprints? Like this week I work on this book. So it depends. Um, it depends what are the projects varies, but as a general rule, so I get up at four o'clock in the morning and I write to about eight. That's my morning writing session. Um, I, what I will, what I'm, when I'm splitting it, I'll do that. Then I'll do other stuff for the rest of the morning. And then after lunch, I'll do an afternoon writing session. Um, then I'll, sometimes I'll make the afternoon a different project. Like I'm doing right now because I'm writing a follow-up to last my novel, um, and I'm editing the final edit on on the peak performance book. Um, so I'm splitting my time. Uh, I don't love it as you, for obvious reasons, right? You feel like your your brain is getting sort of pulled in two different yeah. directions. Yeah. Um, I, I it would be harder if I was writing two things at once. Now I'm editing one, right, yeah. and writing another. And so there's going to come a point when, you know, after I've sort of done the first, the big major edit on the, on the peak performance book, when, I, when I'm going to sort of rewrite and polish it, I will probably just carve out a week and do nothing but that right. um, so I can really drill down and stay focused. Um, it's not the easiest 
thing to do. And usually a lot of it is, um, you, you know what the writing process is like. You write for, you know, a chunk of time and then you turn it in and your editor takes six weeks. Right. So I'll use those six weeks to like, I'll, I'll bounce it around and do that. It's not particularly comfortable. Um, but I like that I, you know, the challenge is interesting to me and that some of that is, you know, some of that is that I just, you know, I just want to test myself as a creative and see what I can do. Of course. I mean, as you're talking, I'm just wondering when in the day you get to ski. So that's the real, (laughs) when in the day you're skiing. So that's the important, because that I'm sure is critical to your writing. It's totally critical. I I really can't write if I'm not uh, hardly myself down mountains at high speeds on a regular basis. (laughs) It's really foundational in my process. You're laughing, but it's really true. I believe you a hundred percent. So, right. so you got it. Like you can't abandon your high flow, your highest flow activity for me skiing um, in the middle of a creative project for a lot. Of, I mean, there's huge neurobiological reasons, peak performance reasons not to, to continue to do that. Um, so how do you, so, so on uh, a practical level, I, uh, how do you schedule that? Yeah, I, uh, I, and I still manage to ski quite a bit, <laughs> three days a week, whatever. Nice. First, you live in North, I, the, the other North thing Nevada. Is I live very close yeah, to the mountains. Yeah, proximity. So not, yeah. I can go, I can get to the mountains, ski for two hours, and get home in like it's a three hour block. Nice. So, you know. Beautiful. Yeah. yeah, I think it's really important what you talked about, Stephen, is, is if you are going to do multiple projects, is to, is to be in different phases of those projects. Because yeah. you can't be in the beginning phases of three projects at the same no, time. No, not that's, at all. That's insanity. Not at all. But yeah. you could be in, in a in a you know germination process and then a, like a final edit process of two different projects in ping pong. I, I, you know. Yeah, that, that I is... don't love. I, I've mm-hmm. I've done two at once where you're writing two different things from scratch. That's a little taxing. Yeah. That, right. Yeah. And and it like the audio book was it was more like I wrote that like I write speeches. So it was really like I built it in PowerPoint because I just had to deliver it, right? I didn't yeah. write it out. I built the PowerPoint so that I could, you know, it was, uh, it, I mean, it was enormous, right? I mean, it was, you know, a thousand slides or some said shit. It was huge, uh-huh. but it was, I delivered it like I was delivering a speech and I didn't write down every, everything. And that was helpful. Oh, um, yeah. It was also helpful, um, you know, having to as a part of it i was editing fiction and i was writing non-fiction mm-hmm. that was sort of easier because they're they're so different from one another um i don't like there are uh thriller writers right there are mystery writers and fiction writers who are so prolific you know they got to be writing two or three books at once yeah. i know some of these people do it by committee and and, and all that stuff yeah. um and that may be a different thing but i don't quite know how they do that all right I, i'm not quite sure um, I know TV writers who have worked on, you know, multiple scripts at once yeah. kind of thing. Um, they, they, have an arm, they have an army of scribes. You know, they, they have a, literally like five, ten people just writing out a scene. Yes. They give them an outline. They there's go, a, go yeah, for it. There's a writer's room. Yeah. Yeah. We had Laura Davis, who's a writer, on uh, coming in, and I've worked with her, and, and she's an amazing writer. And she went through this whole grief process around uh, finishing her book that she worked on for multiple years. Uh, it was a memoir. Um, and there's a, a cycle that I work with, which is called create, release, relax. So you create something, you release it, and you relax. And that's part of a natural flow based on nature. Create, release, relax. And so there's micro cycles of that, and there's macro cycles of that. What phase? So I, yeah. I get that, and I yeah. think you're right. I will tell you, I have a slightly different um, philosophy, and I'll tell you why. Mm. Um, whenever I have a new book coming out, I want my next creative project started already. Yeah. So I will always start my next book two weeks 
before a book comes out, Min- like minimum, right? Because otherwise you're focused on how's it doing in the world, right? You got to do your PR marketing stuff. You have to do your work. Right. But if you care about outcome, you will make yourself crazy as far as I'm concerned. And, and so. she, she, went, she went through literally like a, a death experience in terms of like the grief and it was like the, the whole thing. The other thing I found is, and I, you know, when you fall in love with your, oh, this is the best thing I've ever done, the follow-up is a nightmare, right? I learned that last, I, my second book, West to Jesus, I really, I thought it was gonna be, when I was done, I was like, wow, this is the best thing I've ever written. I don't think I'll ever write better than this. Um, and um, hopefully I was wrong, but it took me eight months to find my neck and I hated those eight months. Like it just ripped me apart. So one thing that I've learned is I don't get that attached anymore. Um, and I've had enough, you know, and I, and I say this, it's funny when you collaborate, when I've collaborated with people who've never written a book before and they go through the same pro or, you know, early book, first, second books, third book, sometimes scripts, whatever you have that problem. You get really attached. Oh, I'm the only one who could write this thing. I'm so attached to it and, you know, blah, blah. And it, all you're doing is just stalling your next project. And, you know, the, the good news about, you know, being older and having written so many goddamn things at this point is I know it always feels that way. Like every project feels like the one and this is, you know, and all that stuff. And I'm like, oh, okay, this is how I have to feel to write this thing, but it's not real. And so afterwards it doesn't, you know, I, I, I always start the next one. I love that. Do you, do you have like suggestions or philosophies or things you feel about letting go of the reception of the book? And because I feel like that sometimes I have, I see that sometimes people who are incredibly gifted and then they do something and it doesn't have the reception they'd hoped and they get discouraged. Like, it seems like you've been incredibly successful in your life. It's just next project, next project. Is there something like, is there a trait in you or is there a philo- is well, there? I always say that the, the way you can define, a, I think the way you define a real creative, like a true creative to me is you're about the next project, right? I, like what it does in the world I had, I got sort of lucky in that I was trained as a journalist and I had to earn a living, right? And to earn a living, I had to have 30 pitches out there at once and be writing five stories at once. Otherwise, I just, I was freelance. I couldn't make a living um, any other way. So by the time an article got published, like if I do an article for Wired, they could hold it for six months before it even came out. Oftentimes, I wouldn't even know the stories got published. Yeah. Until, they, until somebody came up to me and, hey, I read your article, and be like, oh, my God, it's out, right? Like, oftentimes I wouldn't even know. So that sort of helped me along the way with that one. But this is not to say, like, I think most creatives fuck up their careers because they don't realize that, that marketing and PR is a part of the career, sure. right? Mm-hmm. So um, this is not to say avoid the marketing or PR. Like, you have to do – you have to care about – the work that goes into publicizing or whatever, but what it does, it doesn't, I just, I want to do my best and, and just, I'm focused on the work. I like, I'm not in it for anything but the writing. Right. I mean, I like, they let me put words together for a straight in a straight line. Amazing. That's <laughs> that I'm grateful. That's I'm, that's what I'm focused on. Um, You're everything a else. I've just learned, right. Yeah. Like yeah. you will make yourself nuts, um, caring too much. Um, and ultimately, I, you know, the, the, I always ask myself the same question. Is there anything I would do differently here? Right? And if the answer is no, then I, then I can't care about it. If the answer is yes, then I need to do something different. Right? Um, but like, so I'll track 
where things are happening in a PR campaign. Mm -hmm. And I know, I've done this enough that I know what I'm looking for and I know when something's a little screwed up and maybe how to fix it or if it's too late to fix kind of thing, all that stuff. Um, I've seen and I've also um, been in doing this long enough to know, and I don't know if this is the, the case with films, um, but with books, I've also found that you can't judge the success of a book for five or six years, mm. right? It really, the way it's going to impact your life, the way it's going to work its way through ah. the world, mm -hmm. all that stuff, it takes a very long time. So the, those com the combination of that knowledge, I've done this a lot. I don't like to go, if I go too high on the roller coaster or too low on the roller coaster, it fucks with my writing. And if, right, I don't want anything to fuck my, that's more uncomfortable than the other thing. So I just don't, I'd rather not ride it too high yeah. or too low. Yeah. It's that thing of like, can I be 100% committed to something and not be attached to the outcome? You know, because... Of course you're attached. I mean, they're all your babies, right? What did Norm Mailer say? Every one of my books killed me a little bit more, <laughs> right? Yeah. I think that's, I think that's very, very true. And you're always attached to them a little bit, but it's a lousy place to put your focus, I think, in the long term. Yeah. So what skills, what skills do we as creatives need to start developing or looking to in terms of our merging with technology so we can have exponential growth and change? And not only for creatively, but also in terms of just, you know, the practical things of making money and, you know, surviving, uh, thriving yeah, as an artist. Uh, so I don't think, I mean, I think they're creative skills. I think what you actually, you know, um, it's, this is going to sound completely self-aggrandizing on this stuff but at the flow research collective we do flow trainings right mm -hmm. creativity in flow and this is research we did the collective we've been done at harvard university of sydney creativity spikes 400 percent in flow and there's a lot of neurobiological reasons we know exactly why so like i think what you need um training in as a creative is, is flow because it's how you massively amplify creativity and flow and i think that's you know, that's the most important thing. I don't think there's a, there's not, nothing beyond that. Um, Cause it's, there's no, you know, training to be creative inside VR is going to be different than creating to be creative inside of it. The jobs are going to be very, very different, but the, the fundamental skills of, you know, being able to create novel ideas that are useful, right? The de te technical definition of creativity, um, that never changes. And we know um, we're starting to learn more about how to, uh, how to train up creativity, which you saw, uh, you know, we talked a lot about that and, you know, and you know, we can train up flow. And I like, I think those are the skills we need um, more than any, anything else. You know, any, more than like looking at a merging of, of a certain upcoming technology, like for well, instance, like you want to find your passion, right? You want to find something mm -hmm. that you're deeply passionate about. Yeah. Um, that's important. And if the emerging technology speaks to you, Great. I mean, you, you, you certainly need to know that, but like, I'm not an expert in VR at all. And yet I'm involved in two or three different VR based storytelling projects right now that are at various stages of development. They're pretty much, they're a little ways out, but people have come to me and you know, they know my work and they like me as a creative and they want me involved in these. So I don't actually have the V I'll learn that along the way as I get in there as a storyteller. Um, and I'm not saying this is the best way, right? If you're really young and you, you know what I mean? Like if I was a 20 year old creative coming out of college right now, I would be spending a lot of time in VR and AR and thinking about that sort of thing. Um, but I, I don't think, 
you're hurting yourself learning how to be creative with words in any medium or, you know, with images in any medium or, you know, narrative storytelling is storytelling is storytelling is storytelling. Right. Um, the neurochemistry of it, is, you know, is the same, how you engage reader attention, not, you know, and listener attention, viewer attention. Those are the neurobiology is the same. The techniques are sort of the same. Um, I don't know. Certainly, there's going to be changes. We were talking about the multiple branches of like, and and yeah, I, you, like you're going to need skills in there. And I, but I, I ultimately, and I always say, by the way, you know, and I said this when we, you took flow for writers, yeah. surround your craft, right? Figure out how to be great at everything. Um, so that's important too. But I, again, I think the skill is, is is fundamental. It's creativity. It's flow. Okay. Um, and whatever you build on top of that should be based on on where you're passionate about telling stories, in a sense. Yeah. Yeah. ways you're passionate about telling stories love to have one last thing which is give us the update of how the book's doing and and like what's what's going on and how you feel about that um on friday it hit usa today's bestsellers watch wall street journal's bestsellers publishers weekly's bestsellers list amazon uh-huh. um and uh and i will tell you um exactly what i told everybody else who, who asked is, you know every, uh, i'm very pleased with that but as far as like, that to me that's a first step Right. Like this, it's supposed to happen. Uh-huh. This is the way it's supposed to work. Uh-huh. You know, if everybody did their jobs, um, that's what's supposed to happen. But it's not. I don't. You know, I know. Uh, I know how many copies have actually sold. I know what it takes for a book to become a perennial hit. You know what I mean? And, and sell hundreds, thousands of copies, and millions of copies ultimately. And this is just—it's a great start. We got out of the gate perfectly. It was how it was supposed to happen, and. Um, and that's great. It, and, and, and what that really means is I can focus more on, you know, I'm doing, doing, I told you, I'm working on the follow-up novel right now. So like it's, I, I'm sort of delighted because what it really means is I get to ski and write a, a, a novel. And there's, you know, and if you've ever written a novel, you know, it's like, you really feel like you're getting away with something. Writing nonfiction feels a little bit like work and novels can certainly, you can get writer's block and they can be awful work, but when they're going well, you just feel like you're cheating somehow. You're like, really? Like I'm making shit up in my head and putting it on paper. And this is a job. I mean, really? Right. So this, uh, a, this is a whole other conversation, Steve. <laughs> Having done both as well, like, you know, it can I mean, be difficult in different ways. Yes. When you are in, go ahead. You, know, you just sort of pinch yourself and you're like, really, really? Like you, you, I'm, I've been doing this a lot of years, and I still expect the knock at the door, and they're like come here uh, for the man right yeah. like you're still kind of like it's gonna happen there's an, a cubicle and an accounting job waiting for you <laughs> exactly i don't think he, uh and i don't think that i don't who was i just listening to uh maybe it was, it was i think it was neil gaiman actually neil gaiman was giving an interview with somebody and he was talking about how long he felt like you know that there was gonna be the knock at the door they were gonna be like you come with us it's time <laughs> to get that real job right um and even if it is a real job and you know what I mean? Like you've been doing it for long enough. It's still kind of like, well, I'm, you know, writing, especially writing sci-fi, which is what my novels are. Um, that totally feels like you're getting over on something. Yeah. Um, so there's, there's a little of that, but it's, you know, it's super fun. So that's what it, it's super, it's doing really well. And what it means is that I get to ski <laughs> and write fiction, you know, I'm in, in between book tour, but like when I'm home, that's what I get to do it incredibly grateful i'm really thankful that i've got a great audience that lets me do that that's awesome i I appreciate you taking the time out and coming and hanging out with us and inspiring us and and sharing your your insights so thank you so much steven 
my pleasure, guys. Thanks for doing what you do. It's important. Thanks so much. Yeah. Stephen Kotler, the book is The Future is Faster Than You Think. Go grab it wherever you want to read it on a Kindle. Or an audiobook. Yeah, they have the audiobook out there, too. Uh, Stephen, thank you so much. All right. Thank you, guys. Bye-bye. Blessings.